Welcome to Creation Training Radio and TV. I'm your host, Mike Riddle, the founder and president of Creation Training Initiative, where our mission is to train up other Christians how to speak and teach about creation and biblical apologetics. Well, so far we've been going through a series of lessons on understanding the basics about creation. And we just finished in our last session the first chapter on the Bible and time. And in there we discussed things such as, did God use evolution? How long were the days of creation? And how to handle objections to the literal six-day creation week. Well, today we start in chapter 2, and we're going to be talking about the Genesis flood and the Tower of Babel. Well, most people have heard about Noah's ark and the flood. However, many people, including Christians, simply do not believe this was a worldwide flood. Now, why is that? Well, one reason is many of the secular universities, matter of fact, most all the secular universities teach the story of Noah's ark and the flood as nothing more than a myth or they openly ridicule it. Other reasons, some of our Christian university professors unfortunately teach this was a local flood and not a worldwide flood. Even some of our pastors from the pulpit teach the Genesis flood was a local flood and not a worldwide flood. We also see consistently cartoons about Noah's Ark and the Flood where they represent the Ark as nothing more than a houseboat with drafts head sticking out. We see in Christian bookstores pictures of Noah's Ark looking like a bathtub. And as a result, many Christians simply do not believe the Flood was a worldwide Flood because it appears to them the overwhelming evidence that it was just a local Flood somewhere over there in the Middle East. Well, as we go through the Genesis Flood, there are going to be three parts we need to cover. Part one will be, what does the Bible teach about the Flood? Part two, we'll discuss the science, geology, and the Flood. And part three, we'll talk about the fossil record and the Flood. So let's get started with part one. The Bible, what does it teach about Genesis Flood? And our topics will include these. The purpose of the Flood. Why did God, God destroy the entire earth? Why is the flood an important issue to Christians in understanding the Bible? We'll also talk about the flood. Was it really a worldwide flood or was it some local flood? We'll talk about how big was the ark? Where did the, how big was the flood? How long did it last? And we'll discuss other issues. So let's start with the purpose of the flood. And we find this in Genesis chapter 6. And we read this in verses 6 and 7. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination, did you hear that? Every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowl of the air. For it repenteth me that I have made them. That is a serious issue there. And then we read in chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, The earth was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. Now, what we just read there about why God destroyed the earth was this. 
Number one, the whole earth was corrupt. Number two, there was violence everywhere. Three, their thoughts, every thought of their heart was evil. So God decided to destroy the whole earth. This is why we had the great flood. So next, let's look at why is the Genesis flood an important issue for Christians? And there are two main reasons. Number one is the authority of Scripture. As Christians, our starting point should be the Bible, not a geology textbook, not a biology textbook. If we do that, then we have elevated man's wisdom over God's Word. And in other words, it comes down to this. When do we believe the Bible, or do we just allow ourselves to pick and choose what we want to believe about God's Word? Now, the second part, why the Genesis flood is important to the Christian, is the gospel. And the question is, which came first? Was it sin or was it death? That is going to be a critical issue here. And this deals with the fossil record. Now, what are fossils? They are the record of dead things. Now, according to evolutionists, and this is how they view the picture of the fossil record. First of all, they believe the fossils were laid down over millions and millions of years. So what they do is use what are called index fossils to index into the geologic strata to determine the many different ages of Earth's history. For example, if you were to find a trilobite fossil, those are those sea creatures with incredibly complex eyes that were about an inch to a foot long. If you were to find a trilobite fossil, you would know that the sediments you found it in are about 400 million years old because that's when evolutionists believe trilobites lived, died, and would have been buried. If you were to find a Tyrannosaurus rex fossil, you would know the sediments you found it in are about 80 million years old, because that's when evolutionists believe Tyrannosaurus rexes lived, died, and would have been buried. So they use these fossils called index fossils to index into the strata to determine the many different geologic ages of Earth history. However, if there was a worldwide flood, then would most, when would most all those creatures have been buried? At about the same time. That means they would have all been buried at the same time, and they all point to one time period in Earth history, not many different geologic ages. So this makes a difference. If you're believing in an old Earth, then you're believing the flood was a local flood, and the fossils were laid down over millions of years, which would indicate millions of years of death before sin. And if that is true, folks, then sin is not the cause of death. Then why did Jesus Christ have to go to the cross? But if you're believing in a worldwide flood, it would have weighed, laid down all the fossils, all the creatures there, and been buried in one event, which occurred after Adam and Eve and after the fall, which would allow for sin being the cause of death. So it is a critical issue when we look at the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is it, a local flood or a worldwide flood? Now, how big was the flood? Did it cover just part of the world or did it cover all of the world? Well, our best place to get an answer for this is in the Bible. And we will turn to Genesis chapter 7. And we read this starting in verse 19. And the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth. And all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. Verse 21. And all flesh died that moved upon the earth, both of fowl and of cattle and of beast, 
and every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth, and every man. Verse 22. All in whose nostrils was the breath of life, of all that was in the dry land died. And then finally, verse 23. And every living substance was destroyed which was upon the face of the ground, both man and cattle and creeping things, and the fowl of the heaven, and they were destroyed from the earth. And Noah only remained alive and those that were with him in the ark. I have a serious question here. If God would have wanted us to understand this was a worldwide flood, could he have made it any clearer than this? Look at the repetition of the words, all, every, whole. It is consistent in Genesis 7 that this was a worldwide flood. Now here's a quote from John Morris from the Institute for Creation Research. He has his PhD in geology and he states this, but there is hardly a doctrine in the Bible more clearly stated than that of the global flood. In Genesis chapters 6 through 10, the words and the phrases used to describe the flood can be interpreted in no other legitimate way. So here's geologists, and there are many other scientists out there that do believe in a worldwide flood. So now, let's take a look at word usage. And we're going to bring back one of those words we used in chapter 1 called hermeneutics. Now, hermeneutics is the study of written text, how we interpret text. It's also a method of interpreting the Bible, God's Word. And one of those methods is called context, not opinions, but context. So we want to look at five key words or phrases to describe the flood here. And those will be, number one, the earth. Number two, the phrase all flesh. Three, the word every. Fourth, the phrase under the whole heaven. And fifth, the Hebrew word used for flood. So let's start with number one, the phrase the earth. That phrase or term is used at least 46 times in the flooded narrative, and it is never accompanied by any limitation. In other words, it never says a portion of the earth. It never says this region of the earth. It is always the earth, which indicates totality, the entire earth. Then we have the term all flesh, which occurs 12 times in the narrative, always indicating totality, never a portion of the flesh. Then we have the expression, every living thing. Every living thing is also another expression of totality, not just part. Then we have the phrase, under the whole heaven. It is used six times in the Old Testament outside the book of Genesis, or the flood account. And in every instance, it always refers to totality, a universal meaning. So why would it be any different in the flood narrative? And then finally, we have the Hebrew word used for flood. The word is malbul. That is the Hebrew word for flood. That word is used exclusively to describe the Genesis flood. Now, there are other Hebrew words for flood, but every one of them indicates a small stream flood, such as maybe the Nile overflowing its banks. But the word Malbul, exclusively for the Genesis flood, means a large deluge. It never refers to a small stream flood, and it only refers to the Genesis flood, which means 
The Genesis flood was different than any other flood mentioned in the Bible. So when we apply the rules of grammar and context, the book of Genesis 6 through 9 clearly indicate this was a worldwide flood and not some local flood. Now let's turn to the New Testament. Does the New Testament say anything about the Genesis flood? And yes, it does. Jesus and some of the New Testament writers gave evidence that they took the Genesis flood as a fact and not some fictitious story. We see in Matthew 24 and also the book of Luke 17, chapter 17, Jesus confirmed the historical fact of the Genesis flood and the ark. So there's Jesus referring to these as real historical events. Then in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 7, we read this. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear. He prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he, God, condemned the world. Then in 1 Peter 3.20 and 2 Peter 3.5, we read, confirmation that only eight people survived the flood, exactly as the book of Genesis states. Now let's move to another area. If the flood was local, let's examine that. If the flood was really only a local flood, then why did Noah have to build an ark when he could have just gone over the hills and been safe? Why did he have to make the ark so big if it was just a local flood? And why did God have to bring the animals and the birds to the ark if this was only a local flood? See, when we start changing God's word, the Bible really doesn't make much sense. Now also, if the flood was local, then God would have repeatedly broken his rainbow promise. Because he gave us a promise, and the symbol was the rainbow, that he would never again destroy the earth by this kind of flood. Well, folks, we have had many devastating local floods. So if the Genesis flood was a local flood, then God has repeatedly broken his promise. And now if the flood was local, then what that would mean a partial judgment. The flood would only be a partial judgment. And that would also indicate the end times judgment would also be a partial judgment. Because we read this in Matthew 24, verses 37. But as the days of Noah were, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. In other words, again, a partial judgment by the flood would indicate a partial judgment in the end times. Now let's look at another area. How about the depth and the duration of the flood? Well, the Bible says the floodgates of heaven were opened for 40 days and 40 nights. In other words, it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. Then it teaches for 150 days the springs of the deep burst forth. And it also teaches that the waters covered the highest hills, the mountains, by 15 cubits. That's about 22 feet of water. And the Bible also teaches that the flood lasted for over a year. Now, how could a year-long mountain-covering flood only be a local flood? Let's examine this. And I call this looking at water and gravity. We're going to take an example using water and gravity. Now, if we were to take a glass of water and pour it out onto a table, 
what happens when that water hits the table? Well, it begins to spread out and it continues to spread out until something stops it. Now, why doesn't that water stay there in a nice, neat little pile when we pour it out? Well, one of the answers is called gravity. Gravity is exerting a force on that water, causing it to spread and spread until something stops it. Now let's go back to the description of the flood. Forty days and forty nights, the floodgates of heaven are coming down. The springs of the deep are bursting forth. And gravity is exerting a force on that water, causing it to spread and spread until something stops it. But there is nothing there to stop it, because the Bible clearly teaches the waters covered the highest hills, the highest mountains. Therefore, this cannot be a local flood unless we either don't believe in gravity or we simply don't trust the Word of God. The Bible does teach a worldwide flood. Now let's look at another area, population. What could have been the population of the world at the time of the flood? Well, at the time of the flood, which is over 1,600 years after creation, the population of the world could have very easily been over 400 million people. Now, how could a local flood kill over 400 million people, including the animals and the birds? Again, when we change God's word or we don't accept the literal translation or the literal reading, the Bible just simply doesn't make any sense. Well, let's do one more here. How could Noah have fit all those animals on the ark? That's a very big challenge sometimes. Well, number one, Noah did not have to go out on some wild safari and round all these creatures up. God brings the animals to the ark. Secondly, it never says in the Bible, God brought the great big grandma and grandpa creatures to the ark. All God had to do was bring the young creatures to the ark, the young giraffes, the young elephants, young hippopotamus, and I'm going to say this, we're going to cover it in another lesson, the young dinosaurs were on the ark. Now, the ark was not some bathtub or some houseboat. The ark was huge. It was about 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and about 45 feet tall. That's over three stories tall. Now, the ark did not have to carry every living creature. That's a mistake a lot of people make. God did not command every creature to come to the ark. It carried only the air-breathing creatures, the land-dwelling animals, and the winged animals like the birds. Sea creatures and insects would not have to be on the ark. Many of them would have survived a worldwide flood. Thus, this count cuts down significantly the number of creatures that would have had to have been on the ark. And at most, at most, only about 16,000 creatures needed to be on that ark. And since the ark was so big, that would have only filled it about halfway. Plenty of room for all the creatures, and Noah and his family ate people. Now, let's do a recap what we've covered so far. The purpose of the flood was to destroy all men because they were evil in their heart. Secondly, why was the flood important? Because of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the authority of Scripture. If we believe a local flood, then we're teaching there was death before sin. Third, 
The language used to describe the flood in Genesis chapter 7 clearly indicates this was a worldwide flood. Fourth, the New Testament writers, including Jesus Christ, testified to the fact of Noah's ark and the flood. Next, we looked at the flood and what it would mean if we had a local flood. And if we had a local flood, then the Bible simply makes no sense anymore. Then we looked at the duration and depth of the flood, and it covered the highest mountains, which means it could not have been a local flood. And then we looked at population statistics, and we saw there could have been very easily 400 million people living on this planet at the time of the flood. So when we look at all these factors, just the Bible, and we haven't even talked about geology and the fossil record yet, but just the Bible, the plain reading of the Bible, clearly teaches this was a worldwide flood. Thank you and God bless. If these lessons had been a blessing to you, you might consider financially supporting the Ministry of Creation Training Initiative. You can do this by going to our website, creationtraining.org. Again, that's creationtraining.org. Your tax-deductible donation of just $20, $50 or more a month, or a one-time gift of any amount will make you an education partner in building an army of Christian educators who can teach the biblical account of creation and train others to be able to defend their faith and be biblically faithful to God's word as it states in 1 Peter 3.15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear.